morning. Good to see you guys all. Good morning. <laughs> Good morning, honey. <laughs> Stand on up. We'll praise the Lord. Go! 
Lord, even the rocks cry out when your people fail to praise you. And so we praise you this morning. We thank you for this beautiful new day, Lord. Your mercies are new today the same way they're going to be new again tomorrow. And it's not even recycled mercies. It's brand new ones. We thank you for that, Lord, and we cling to it because we need it. And so, God, as we just go into this time of Bible teaching and, and more worship later, Lord, may our hearts just be prepared by the Holy Spirit to receive what you have for us and to show forth our love and adoration of you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Good to see you all here this morning. Uh, just a few announcements. We have lunch after the service uh, in our cafe area over here. I forgot what what was it? Tacos. Ta tacos. So uh, be Christmas tacos. Christmas tacos. <laughs> so sounds very good. Uh, after the service today, we are not we we are done with the uh, ladies' study and the and Daniel Pastor Daniel concluded Daniel last week and so. Uh, but today, we are going to have a prayer meeting uh, at 1 o'clock. And so anybody's invited, if you're a believer in Jesus, uh, you can join us for that. And uh, it'll be in here. And uh, we'll just be a time to, to seek the Lord uh, in prayer. And uh, so anybody's invited for that. And uh, if you're a believer, obviously. Uh, we have a Christmas Eve service on Friday, December 24th, 7 o'clock. Uh, if you want to bring a dessert, you can. That's great. And we won't be having our Wednesday night service that week, so we will have the Christmas Eve service in lieu of that on, on Friday. Uh, we are meeting this week, uh, Wednesday night, so you're welcome for that. Let's come to that. Uh, the clothing donation, we were supposed to have it yesterday, but uh, because of uh, fear of weather, uh, we called it off. Uh, so we plan on doing it this Saturday. And uh, we can still use uh, clothing donations. It's just working out really good. We set up out here, and uh, lots of people are being blessed with clothes and the food. And so um, if you have any, if you need to clean out your closet, just bring it on in here. And uh, we have some ladies that are working that hang it all up, and we roll the racks out. It's just been a real blessing to the neighborhood. With that, do we have any praise reports? Does anybody have anything they want to share? Uh, God, uh, Clay's got his hand up back there, and then Monica has her hand up. So just hold on a second. So we got to see Luke yesterday uh, in a little scan thing. He's not here yet. But they said that he's measuring at 7 pounds, 10 ounces. Wow. And, uh, yeah, he's, it's cool. We got to see yeah. him. Yeah. So praise God for that. That's amazing technology. So I know you guys are, I know Michaela's ready to <laughs> have this baby, right? Did I move? There we go. Okay. So this is um, going to start out not sounding like a praise. Um, my husband's oldest daughter, Sabrina. Um, was killed in a, in a house fire um, a week or two ago, unfortunately. Um, the praise that came out of that is that his other daughter, Katrina, has been very estranged from us for 20 years. And I've been praying and praying and praying. There's some things that happened when she lived with us that 
created a rift. And um, I've been praying for 20 years for some sort of reconciliation or at least an opportunity to speak with her. But she literally cut us off. And at one point she tried to reach us and I was unaware. And then I tried to reach her back and it just, I just, I was like, Lord, I don't understand. You know, you've put this burden on my heart for this child and I pray for her constantly and I've been praying for this restoration. And through this situation, I reached out through Facebook to try and get a hold of her again, thinking maybe somebody would see it somewhere. And they did, and she called us. She's in Australia. Oh, okay. So the only way we can really communicate is through Facebook. And we use the Facebook Messenger phone call service. And um, we were able to get in touch with her by phone through that. And although I don't know that I could say that the, the relationship is restored per se, because there was a lot of hurtful things that happened, but we at least got a chance, both of us and her dad, to speak some things out. And there is some movement in the direction of restoration. So I'm still praying for that. But the praise report is a 20-year prayer got answered. Yeah. And I so many times wanted to give up. Just so many times said, God, I'm tired of praying for this child. I don't want to do it anymore because it hurts so bad. But just kept telling me you need to keep doing it you need to keep praying for her this is going to happen so that's the praise praise god anybody else have a, a prayer or a praise report you want to share oh greg's got his hand up in the middle there I just want to say I am glad Bill is here. <laughs> Where'd he go? He's right behind you. <laughs> it's, you know, it's been a long time, and it's just good to see him, and uh, the whole church misses him and everything. And also, I see Pam next to him. Hi, Pam. Hey, <laughs> good to God. see you. And, all right. Praise, praise God. We missed you too, Pam. Anybody else? Okay, sure. Yeah. Just if you guys, um, uh, Dave is not here today. He's home uh, sick. And so if you guys would just keep him in your prayers. He's just not, hadn't been feeling good all weekend. So remember him as you pray. Nice. Thanks. And uh, does anybody else have a prayer need? If you'd raise your hand, we're just going to get a few people to gather around you and lift you up in prayer. So Mackenzie's got her hand up. Anybody else need prayer this morning? All right, if a few would gather around Mackenzie and... Uh, well, I'll start us off, and then uh, Pastor Daniel's going to come up and bring us the word this morning. Heavenly Father, we just uh, thank you for these praise reports, Lord, for you answering prayers, even, even 20 years uh, in the making, Lord. And Father, we just thank you for uh, your faithfulness. And Lord, we just ask that you would hear us now as we lift one another up to you, Father.
way the enemy had his way with storms that came through our nation. And I can remember, Father, going to work and praying because of the events that were happening. And we even watched on the radar, God, as you separated the storm, and I just smiled. One or two people, I was able to say, that's the Lord's grace. Father, your grace is almost overwhelming. And when we get to a place in life and we don't think that you hear us, that's just when the enemy is doing his worst to get us to give up talking to you. What a joy, what a privilege, what an honor to be able to talk to the creator of this universe and know that you love us and you care about us. There's things that happen, God, that we don't understand. We won't understand until we see you face to face. But one thing that we cannot doubt, that we should never doubt, is that your grace is there with us, upholding us, helping us to stand. Father, you know the events and the hectic schedule. And if it were not for your grace, I wouldn't stand here today. So, Father, by your grace, I pray that we can be here and that we can get into your word and that we can study your word because when we study your word, we hear your promises. We find your grace and your grace does sustain us until we see you face to face so father as we get into your word today I pray that you will honor your word and that you will allow your anointing your Holy Spirit to flow so that we will have hearts and minds and ears open only to your word as we get into your word today Father, I pray that you take this imperfect vessel and that you allow your perfect spirit to flow through and that we all join together, Almighty God, in glorifying you through the study of your word. In the name of Jesus, Lord, I pray. Amen. Amen. Today we are going to attempt to close out 1 Thessalonians and get all the way to the end of chapter 5. Uh, and I have given this uh, title to what is Paul trying to do in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 verses 12 through 28. He is working there to tell us and give us the instructions for having a spirit-filled church. Now, you might be wondering, how in the world did I get that out of uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5? <laughs> I hope by the end of this you'll understand and you will see the, the tying together and the unison of Paul's instructions. And we still believe this was Paul's first letter that was written. Um, so when we look at it, I hope that you'll keep in mind and you'll hear me give a reference to... Romans and Corinthians and Galatians and Ephesians. And as I was in the study 
of this today uh, and this week, I really began to see how all of Paul's thoughts are here in this last chapter of 1 Thessalonians, and then later we will see him expand those thoughts in Romans and Galatians and Ephesians and Colossians, but we're not going to go to every one of those. <laughs> we're going to focus today on 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 28. So these are Paul's closing verses to the church at Thessalonica. And in these verses, Paul is giving very practical jewels of instructions for how a church should operate. Paul's instructions, when they are closely compared to his other writings, reveal that the only way to keep Paul's instructions is for the church to be filled with the Holy Spirit. So I've introduced the connection, and we'll keep going through to get that connection, I hope. What does it mean to be a spirit-filled church? It means that the fellowship allows the Holy Spirit to provide the leaders of the church. The fellowship welcomes and practices the fruit of the Spirit. And the fellowship actively seeks all the gifts of the Holy Spirit, allowing their exercise to be motivated by love for one another and to be demonstrated decently and in order. Before we get into Thessalonians verse by verse, let's take a minute, quickly review the gifts and the fruit of the Holy Spirit. So let's look at the gifts of the Spirit. And time today is not going to allow me to go through for a full review of the gifts of the Spirit. So I'm going to focus on the three main ways in which the gifts of the Spirit are grouped. First, the gifts of the Spirit are grouped under a heading titled Motivational, and this list comes from the book of Romans chapter 12. These gifts are meant to motivate all believers into serving the Lord. And although there are leadership gifts with some of these same titles, all of these motivational gifts are available. I'm going to change what I have written and say it this way. They're all available to each and every one of you. So I want you to understand that this is available, and I don't have time right now, but as you get through and you understand, these gifts are available to everyone in the body of Christ. These gifts are prophecy, serving, teaching, exhortation, giving, leadership, and mercy. We just could automatically go and start explaining each one, but we won't. The next grouping of gifts are called the manifestation or the supernatural gifts of the Spirit and are often emphasized by the Pentecostal and Charismatic fellowships with some Christian groups, however, teaching that these gifts are no longer functional. That seems odd to me that the Holy Spirit's ministry would change so radically without clear prophecy in the Bible. Calvary Chapel does believe that these signed gifts are still in operation today, but we also teach that these gifts are to be practiced decently and in order. The final grouping of spiritual gifts or the ministry gifts of the Spirit where certain believers receive a special calling to serve in the leadership of the local assembly. The ministry gifts are the offices of the apostle, the prophet, the evangelist, and the pastor-teacher. In Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 12 through 13, these are the ones who are laboring among the fellowship. So let's jump into, well, sorry, I'm getting ahead of myself. I knew I was going to do it. I fought with myself even when I wrote it because we still haven't talked about the fruit of the Spirit. So we've talked about the gifts of the Spirit, but what is the fruit of the Spirit? Paul will list the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5, 
And the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. I wish I could run them off that quick from memory. Been trying. I'll keep trying. In these closing verses of 1 Thessalonians, if we watch closely, we will notice that Paul is instructing the Thessalonians and therefore us to produce the fruit of the Spirit in our personal lives, in our fellowship when we come together. How do you produce an apple? This is where David, I could, I could get David up here and I, he could go in absolute detail and I'd love to do it. Because how do you produce an apple? We think of, well, how do I produce the fruit of the Spirit? You don't. You don't produce an apple. You plant a seed and an apple tree produces an apple. You plant and an, you plant the apple tree. So if that's the case, how do we produce the fruit of the Spirit? You allow the Holy Spirit to be implanted in you and you nourish your connection to the, to the spiritual so that the life of Jesus flows from the vine into you as a branch with the fruit of the Spirit being produced. In these verses in Thessalonians, we will learn that we cannot succeed as a church by human effort alone. In fact, as it was said in Zechariah 4.6, the house of the Lord is not built by human might nor by human power, but by the Spirit of the Lord. Now, let's get into Thessalonians, starting in verses 12 and 13. We ask you, brothers to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. Paul starts his instructions by first focusing on the relationship that the fellowship of the church should have with the leadership of the church. Paul's use of the word brothers indicates that he is directly speaking to the assembly of believers, the church fellowship, and not just the leaders of the church. Now, Paul is not commanding a blind respect such as many false ministers have demanded. Paul is teaching us to respect those leaders who are giving themselves to serve the fellowship. In other words, a Christian leader serves others and doesn't demand that others serve the leader. For me, it seems easy to spot the one who is serving the church from an honest, humble heart and the one whose service is done for a show to gain advantage over others. Yet I am constantly amazed at people who will humble themselves before a false minister who demands servitude. But they will not respect and imitate the humble, genuine servant of Jesus who performs his or her service out of love for Jesus and the fellowship. Paul's instructions are being given to the Thessalonians so they don't simply pretend to be having church. Yet the Holy Spirit saw fit for these words to be recorded and passed down to us today. What is your desire for coming to church? Is your desire to be part of a spirit-filled fellowship that is serving Jesus, each other, and the community surrounding the church? Or is your desire to pretend you serve others while secretly desiring that the church serve you? Now, perhaps I'm not talking, and I hope I'm not talking to anyone sitting here today. But we who are serving with the right motivation need to understand and be able to discern what the wrong motivation looks like. As this church grows in this community, 
there will come a time when savage wolves will attempt to come into the congregation and help themselves to the sheep. However, if the sheep are wise enough to discern the difference between true leaders who deserve respect and esteem and the false leaders who demand to be served, then those wise sheep will avoid the chaos of having to endure a savage wolf for very long. I have learned that when a wolf sneaks into your sheep pen, that the wolf will not stay long when the sheep are alert and understand the wolf's plans and strategies. The church throughout history has had a great deal of difficulty in following this command of Paul here in Thessalonians. Be at peace amongst yourselves. This is historically true because savage wolves hungry for political power took over the leadership of the church and this continues to be difficult today because of the independent attitude of many individuals in many congregations. As Americans, we have encouraged the attitude of independence. You can't tell me what I'm going to do. To the point that far too many people will not respect, esteem, and love those who are genuinely laboring for the unity of the brethren. Jesus' command to his disciples is for us to love one another. Jesus told us that the world would know that we belong to him because of our love for one another. Yet what the world sees from most churches today is a militaristic core of evangelists trying to force their beliefs on others. We should evangelize. And then we should use words if we have to. Just recently I heard a line in Casting Crown's song that says, Jesus is going to save the world, but maybe the best thing we can do is just get out of the way. Perhaps the evangelical church needs to listen closely to what they were trying to tell the church. How do we get out of Jesus' way? We let the world see Jesus through our love for one another as we have spirit-filled worship in a fellowship where God-called ministers are serving the body and the body is respecting, esteeming, and loving the leaders who are serving them. When the world checks out our fellowship, will they be able to tell that our leaders in ministry are respected for their labor, held in high esteem because of God's calling to ministry, and loved as fellow disciples of Jesus who are willing to give of themselves to lead others to Jesus? If Jesus stopped by today, how would he grade our fellowship on keeping these instructions? Please know that I'm not saying this because I want more attention. If you know me, you know that ain't true. I'd be happy to preach this from the back of the church and you couldn't even see me. I'm happy with the respect, the esteem, and the love I receive from this fellowship and glad to say that I have no problem letting anyone know that the love is a mutual love in Christ. I do not believe there is a problem with this fellowship right now, but I am trying to make an application of what Paul is instructing. And I'm aware that if... I point a single finger at anyone, then that many more are pointing back at me. And I have to do this as well. So then, if that is how the leaders in the fellowship are to treat each other, then how is the fellowship to treat one another? Paul continues instructions in verse 14. 1 Thessalonians 4, 4, 5, 14. 
And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. To best understand what Paul is instructing here, and I promise you I'll only do it with this verse, it's best to break this sentence down part by part. Y'all know Calvary Chapel, we teach book by chapter, book by book, chapter by chapter, verse by verse. I'm the one that likes to teach word by word. So, uh, 1 Thessalonians, first part of 5.14, and we urge you, brothers. Remember that Paul's use of the word brothers indicates that he is talking specifically to the members of the body and not just the leaders and the ministers. If Paul is urging the fellowship, then we can understand that this is an urgent request. The expectation is then that we obey the authority of the Lord's apostle, meaning that this is not up for debate, and it is not a command to be ignored. The next line, admonish the idol. The word used by Paul that is here translated as idol carries the idea of someone, especially a soldier, who refuses to perform the necessary commands to keep order in the ranks. Anybody been in the military? Have you ever seen a soldier not obey an order? How well did that go for that soldier? <laughs> Didn't go well at all, did it? So here we've got a command from Paul who was speaking on behalf of Jesus Christ. Uh, probably we should obey the command. I recall that when Paul wrote to the Corinthians, he described the church as a body made up of several parts. We can understand that, it, that if there is one member of the body that will not follow the commands of the head, that is Jesus, that the result is paralysis. That's true in the physical body. It's also true in the church fellowship. Therefore, if one unruly person in the congregation is endangering the rest of the body, then the body must warn. That is what admonish means. It doesn't mean to punish. It doesn't mean to put down. It doesn't mean to belittle. It means to warn that person of the danger of his or her actions to the whole body. It's true that this can be misused if Jesus' command to love one another is not upheld. I've seen it abused in the church. I'm not the body. Therefore, if someone has offended me, then they have not offended the body. We should never be unruly in warning the unruly. We warn someone because we love them and we are not willing to see harm come to them or the body. Of course, we can't predict a person's reaction to this type of warning, and in that case, we follow Jesus' example of reaching out privately first, then with two or three from the body, and then the whole body. Why does this work? Because in a healthy, loving body of Christ, when someone follows the second step, then there is a check to see if they are wrong and the person really needs to be warned. Encourage the faint-hearted. If there is a part of our own physical body that is weak, then to make it strong, we should use physical therapy to exercise that part of the body and feed that part of the body to encourage it to be strong. If someone in our fellowship is discouraged, timid, or scared, then we're not to admonish them, but encourage them. You warn someone who refuses to work but can work. 
However, for the person who is discouraged, timid, and lacks the confidence that they can do the work, then the right approach is to encourage them and build up their confidence. We should coach one another and always be ready to strengthen the faith of our brothers and sisters in the Lord. Next line, help the weak. And this here, this use of the word weak does not refer to a simple lack of strength, but a lack of strength due to a sickness or illness. The urgency then is to help, assist, and bear the burden for as long as the person is infirmed. Of course, this weakness could also mean those who are tempted to abandon the faith. Remember the Thessalonians, they were there, they were Jewish, they were being persecuted, they were being tempted to abandon the faith. In this life, there are many reasons that a person could be tempted to abandon the faith, and we should encourage them and help them by sharing our testimony of how and when we were tempted, and when we were tempted, how the Lord strengthened us. We should even be honest enough to admit that there were times when we have faltered in the faith. But even then, I hope you have learned as well as I have learned that Jesus will leave the ninety and nine to find that one lost sheep. I have been that lost sheep. And it was people who helped me see their love for Jesus and Jesus' love for me that led me back to the safety of the flock in Jesus' care. They loved me without judging me and allowed the Holy Spirit to deal with my failures and heal my faith so that I can trust and obey Jesus for myself. How long should we spend warning, comforting, encouraging, and helping the idle, unruly, discouraged, tim timid, and weak? Paul answers this with the last line in verse 14. Because we are to be patient with them all. Praise God that he is long-suffering and not willing that any should perish. For I tell you, congregation, he would have helped me perish long ago when I was backslidden and bringing shame to his name. Here is where loving one another plays a crucial role. We are to be patient, long-suffering, kind, what is that starting to sound like? Fruit of the Spirit. We're not to rush this process. Last time I checked, patience is also one of the fruit of the Spirit. It's not my patience. My patience wears out quick. Ask Tracy. But have you ever been in a situation when you were beyond your own patience and you look back at it and said, how in the world did I endure and bear and put up with that? And you realize that God was there, the Holy Spirit was there giving you the patience to get through that situation. So whether this is evangelism, admonishment, encouragement, or bearing someone else's burden, then we are to be patient, giving the Lord time to work. With whom are we to be patient? We are to be patient with all. At an English 1102 teacher that said that's one of those words that it it doesn't exclude anybody. If you use it in one of your papers and don't mean all, I'll drop you a letter grade. She taught me what all meant. So if Paul used the word all and the Holy Spirit speaking through Paul, he means all without exception. I'll admit this is a very hard thing today. 
And I believe that apart from the fruit of the Spirit being produced in our lives, that we will not be able to be patient. How then are we to respond to others when they are not being patient with us? Paul gives us the answer in verse 15. 1 Thessalonians 5.15 See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. We are never to repay evil for evil. And this is possibly the temptation that we as followers of Jesus are continually faced with as people in the world are treat us with evil intentions. If we were to... Don't raise your hands. But if I were to ask you to raise your hands, how many times this week have you been tempted to respond to evil with evil? If we're honest, probably every one of us in here would raise their hand. Even me writing this has been through that same temptation. It's like, okay, God. <sighs> so we, we should never, ever have to deal with not only the world doing us evil, but we do. But God forbid that we should ever have to deal with someone doing us evil in the church. And yet, because there are tares in the wheat, and me and God have argued about this one. But he said, I wrote it, I said it when I was on earth. I know what you gave the parable. Because there are tares in the wheat. Understand that. Jesus said it would be the end of the age before the tares are removed from the wheat. We sometimes have the experience of someone in church treating us with evil intentions. Now, to understand how to behave this way, and by that I mean returning good for evil, we must understand the difference between good and evil. So let's remind ourselves of a few things that define evil. Number one thing I want to get off the table, evil is not always ugly when it first appears. We often think that we can detect evil because evil is ugly. It is true at the end of the course evil is ugly, but it does not always appear ugly at first. We are told that even the devil can appear as an angel of light in the process of deceiving us. Therefore we learn that the intent of evil is to deceive and imitate the source of all lies. This is why we cannot accept things at face value, but Paul's going to tell us later in this chapter, we must test all things to see whether they are good or not. Secondly, evil either seeks to harm us or does not care what harm it causes to others. That's some of the greatest evil I've seen on the face of this earth when a human being decides that he or she wants something and does not care the harm it does to others. Evil desires to steal from us, to kill us, or, or to destroy us for its own profit. How then should we understand the good? The good all comes from our Heavenly Father and therefore displays His characteristics and His desires for His children. What are those characteristics of God? Y'all know I'm coming back to this. I'm, all, I'm boiling all the way down every time. Life, light, and love that is freely given to both the just and the unjust. If evil wants to take from us, how then are we supposed to be able to, to, to do good to one another and everyone? Evil wants to take from us. I learned in economics in college. It's the whole thing of scarce resources. People start taking from me and I go, I ain't got enough to meet all of these demands. 
Because this is a very hard thing because we are always concerned that we're going to run out of resources if we're good to everybody. How can I be good to everybody? I'm going to run out of patience, kindness, goodness, love, joy. Wait a minute. Those things aren't supposed to come from us anyway. And see, this is a result of us forgetting that our Heavenly Father is also our provider. We want to think of that as money. We've been corrupted to think that our Father is our provider for our material resources. He is an infinite, inexhaustible supplier of spiritual resources. Therefore, we need the faith to trust that God will always supply our need even when what we need comes into being by our being good to others. In other words, we're exhausting ourselves. How are we replenished? It is through our trust in God. We must truly understand and believe that God is good. And since we are to imitate our Heavenly Father, then we must have, He must have given us the ability to be good. How do we have this ability? You should know the answer. It's the fruit of the Spirit that is produced in our lives as we in faith seek to know the goodness of our Heavenly Father. Therefore, as we feel like we're running on empty and can do no more good, we're not to grow weary in well-doing, but by coming to the throne of grace and seeking our Father's provision for our every need, we can find the resources when we feel like we're running on empty. Now, i got to remember that along with everybody else. When you feel like you can't keep going on, go one more place. Go to the Father's throne. Paul switches to these thoughts in the next few verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 16 through 18. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. How in the world, Paul, can we always rejoice when there is so much evil in this world? We can rejoice because joy is the fruit of the Spirit that is produced in our lives when our spirit is nourished in prayer and thanksgiving. So how do we rejoice? We rejoice by remembering the promises of God to His children. We are reminded of those promises whenever we read these promises in God's Word. While it is true that we must study the Bible and learn to eat the meat of the Word as well as drink the milk, it is also true that we must learn to read the Word in a devotional manner where we are talking to God and allowing the Holy Spirit to speak the Word of God and His promises personally into our lives. I dare say that many of the church are neither studying the Word nor reading the Word devotionally on a regular basis. It is often not too difficult to know which believers are staying in the book because of their ability to rejoice always. Those who study the Word and allow the Word to speak to them through the anointing of the Holy Spirit know that God is a promise keeper and they know the promises that God has made to them in His Word. The reason that we are able to rejoice is because of these promises that God has made to us and our faith in God keeping His promises. How do we have this faith? We must pray without ceasing, which means not that we should set up a timer on our prayers. How many times are we challenged to do that? That pleases the flesh, 
not the Spirit. But that prayer, talking with our Heavenly Father and listening to Him, must become a constant attitude and action of our hearts, souls, and minds. Praying always means that we always pray in every possible way. We have our prayer closet where we can find the solace to pour out our hearts to our Heavenly Father as we boldly approach His throne. We have confidence that God hears our silent prayers and the cries of our heart. This confidence extends to relying on Jesus and the Holy Spirit to take the simplest of our prayers and offer them as incense and a pleasing aroma to our Heavenly Father. Do you know that Jesus is there for you today to take the simplest prayer that you can pray and make it like the most eloquent prayer that has ever been prayed? All he asks is that you talk to him. As we develop prayer in every part of our life, our life will become a life of communicating with God. And as we communicate with our Heavenly Father, then He pours out His Spirit into our hearts so that we cry, Abba, Father, dearest Father, Daddy. And we know that every good and perfect gift comes down from our Heavenly Father. With such knowledge, then we are able to give thanks in all circumstances because we know that our Heavenly Father knows exactly where we are and what we are going through because we know He is right there with us as our good, good Father making sure that all things work together for our good because we love Him and there's no doubt about His love for us. So we're building our faith. As we build our faith, we learn I'm going to jump to the end and then back. Because I do believe that we as human beings are unique in all of creation because we are comprised of body, soul, and spirit. I believe all three. And the challenge that we face today is because what this mud sack wants, it really wants. And it is forcing us constantly. What does the mud sack want? It wants the mud. It wants us to roll in the mud. And we are constantly fighting that but we do elevate sometimes to our soul where our emotions are at, where our desires are at, where our will is at. And even people who do not know Jesus Christ can have those emotional reactions. However, when we have surrendered our lives to Jesus Christ, our spirit is reborn and our spirit is reactivated which allows us to connect with the Lord God Almighty and His Spirit to connect with our emotions and even our body. So we've got to keep that in mind when we read in verses 19 through 21, do not quench the Spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast what is good. In verse 19, Paul instructs us, do not quench the Spirit. What does Paul mean when he says that we should not quench the Spirit? The idea contained in the word quench is the idea of putting out a fire or extinguishing a fire. Remember that the Holy Spirit, when he was first given to the church on the day of Pentecost, appeared as fire to ignite the church to fulfill its purpose in the world. 
Therefore, we must not put out the fire of the Holy Spirit that should be fueling the fires of the church. Some churches have denied and extinguished the fire of the Holy Spirit by denying His role in the function of the church. Some have done so by denying the gifts of the Spirit, and others have done so by denying the Spirit, Spirit's ability to move upon the emotions of those who worship. Have you ever been to a church, you, there couldn't be any emotional reaction, or you were getting in the flesh. Been there, got that stamp. Uh, so that's not where we want to be. And still others have done so by making worship about ritual and tradition rather than following the leading of the Holy Spirit. There's also a word of caution necessary here. And I want to read what Pastor Chuck had to say about this. Now I wish I could read it in his calm, baritone voice. Now a lot of people use this scripture to tolerate all kinds of foolishness going on within the body of Christ. You know, someone screaming outlandishly and running up and down the aisles, screaming and all, and in their second pass, Romaine, that was Pastor Romaine, one of his elders and helpers, catches them and takes them outside. And you know the first thing they say to Romaine? The Bible says, quench not the spirit. Well, that's not what Paul's talking about. There is a spirit that is to be quenched, the human spirit. So Paul teaches the Corinthian church that the church service must be held decently and in order and the love of Christ teaches us that we're not to draw attention to ourselves and distract others from worshiping the Lord. In verse 20, Paul instructs us, do not despise prophecies. In the last verse, Paul, do, Paul told us not to quench the Spirit and I've seen this personally, so just so you know my background, if you visit and I come from a Pentecostal church so I was brought up the other way where it was okay to run down the aisle screaming and shouting. And the last verse, Paul, does, Paul told us not to quench the Spirit, and I've seen this used to justify someone shouting out a message in tongues, right in the middle of the teaching of the Word. That is a sign of an immature congregation because Paul teaches us in Corinthians that the spiritual gift of prophecy is superior to the gift of tongues. But I've never seen someone shout out a word of prophecy during the pastor's teaching. Probably because that would, would not seem so supernatural. We also get confused when we hear this word prophecy and think that the, world means to for, the word means to foretell the future. The word of God foretells the future. That's what we've been studying in Revelation in the book of Daniel. I don't have to. And so here prophecies do not mean foretelling the future as much as it means foretelling from the word of God as empowered by the spirit of God. Why would someone despise prophecies? Because prophecies often speak to those secret and hidden sins in our hearts and force us to confront and reveal to God those uncomfortable hidden things of our heart. Paul goes on to teach us in verse 21 that, fellowship, that the fellowship of believers must test all things and hold on to what is good. This agrees with what Paul teaches in Corinthians where there is a time given for two or three people to speak a word of prophecy in the church service and in response the church should discern if the prophecy aligns and agrees with the word of God. In fact, this verse goes beyond testing prophecies and teaches us that even though the church should allow the movement of the spirit of God in the church, 
that does not mean that just anything should be allowed in the name of freedom in the spirit. This is the lesson that so many Pentecostal and charismatic brothers and sisters have forgotten to uphold. We are to test the spirits and determine whether it is the Holy Spirit, an evil deceiving spirit, or a person's own emotional ecstasy. Only what comes from the Holy Spirit is worth keeping for the building up of the church. Anything else that comes from a deceiving spirit or even a person's emotional excitement is subject to lead to disorder, chaos, and division in the church. History has proved this as fact in the church over and over again. Therefore, we're to use verse 22 as a litmus test. I still remember this one from King James. Shun every appearance of evil. 1 Thessalonians 5.22, English Standard Version. Abstain from every form of evil. This is the litmus test for the Christian's life. And that test involves us making sure that we never intend to do evil or even appear to intend to do evil. Remember the definition of evil. So many Christians would be saved so much grief if they would be wise as a serpent and harmless as a dove rather than being naive about how and what they are doing may appear as evil to others. Now let me be clear. Even the early Christians were falsely accused of doing evil because of their love for one another. That's the job of our enemy is the accuser of the brethren. This does not mean that we will never be falsely accused. Our enemy has got a job that he's doing. It simply means that we are testing all things, including being sure to test our own motives, actions, and intents to ensure that our hearts are in line with the nature and character of our Heavenly Father. In other words, it is better to avoid even the appearance or perception that something is harmful, deceitful, or comes from any source but our Heavenly Father. What will be the result of a local assembly of believers following Paul's instructions in these verses? We find the answer in the next two verses. 1 Thessalonians 5, 23 and 24. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, he who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Paul starts his thought in verse 23 by offering it as a prayer that the God of peace sanctify each individual in the fellowship. Yes, I checked the Greek and King James. It didn't say ye, it said you. So he was talking to individuals. Paul is telling us that the will of God is to bring peace in our lives and do a complete work in our individual lives so that our whole being will be preserved by God until we see Jesus face to face. What a glorious promise and eternal hope that we have been given. I'm afraid that too often we read this blessed promise and skip right past it without giving it the attention that it truly deserves. Our Heavenly Father, who, was, who has called us to accept Jesus as our Lord and Savior, is faithful to make sure that our faith is not shipwrecked in, on our journey. That's powerful, people. Our Heavenly Father is making sure that we will safely arrive at the shore of His safe haven in heaven. Fellow believer, when will we, sur 
surrender trying to work our way to heaven and allow our heavenly father to fill our spirit our soul and transform our body by his spirit we have trusted Jesus to take the responsibility for saving our soul from hell and damnation when will we start trusting the God of peace to perform his work of sanctification in our lives if our salvation is the product of God's grace, so too is our sanctification, and our responsibility is simply to continue to feed on the goodness and grace of our good, good Father, so that we are filled with His Spirit transforming our minds and souls in this life with a new body that in the next life will be created in the image of the resurrected Jesus awaiting for us when we arrive home. Why do I want the mud when I've got a new body that ain't made out of mud? Thank you, Jesus, for this sure reward. Thank you, Holy Father, that it really is your will, your way, and your work in my life that ensures that I will arrive safely home in heaven with you. Therefore, when we have confidence that we have passed the litmus test and that we're not showing any form of evil, then we are able to have peace because we know that this is a work of God sanctifying us completely. By that I mean that His Holy Spirit is working in us so that we can be holy as he is holy. Last few verses. 1 Thessalonians 25 through 28. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Paul closes this letter rather quickly. And so this sermon closes rather quickly but does not fail to show that he needs the prayers of the fellowship. Once again, we are reminded that no matter how strong the Christian leader appears, that he will not be successful in the ministry without the prayer support of the body of Christ. Paul reminds us to greet one another affectionately, and in a word of prophecy and apostolic authority, puts us all under oath that we will not fail to read this letter he wrote to the Thessalonians. Finally, Paul closes with the truth and the prayer that the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with every believer to hold us and sustain us as we live our lives. Thank you, Jesus, for your grace. We're in the Christmas season, and yes, Christ Mass, or the memory of Christ. Yesterday, Tracy and I were talking. And as we were talking about this body, the mud sack, I made the point that only other than Adam and Eve and sin corrupted everything in our experience of our, these physical bodies because of, everybody wants to blame Eve, Adam ate the forbidden fruit knowing he was doing wrong. He wasn't deceived. The second man, Adam, that's just unraveled Romans for you. 
The second man, Adam, Jesus Christ, was born without a sin nature. Think about that. That sin nature that we have that causes us to be sick, that causes our bodies to fail, that causes all of these wrong things that go on, wrong thoughts, wrong emotions, that gets all of this messed up, Jesus did not have that in his body. He was perfect as Adam was created to be perfect human. So too was Jesus created to be a perfect human. And he came as a babe in a manger instead of a king on a throne. And yet he died. He allowed that perfect body who knew no sin to carry our sin to the cross. Never forget to connect the wood of the manger with the wood of the cross that he would die on. So as we celebrate Christmas, as we celebrate the birth of Jesus Christ, we should. We should be grateful and thankful and celebrate. And the world should see us celebrate Jesus this time of year. As we celebrate and as we worship Jesus, never forget he did all of that for me and you so that one day, we could move from this house and this home to be home with our Heavenly Father and have eternal life. If you've never received that gift, I pray that your Christmas gift will be to accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior and receive the gift of eternal life that He came to bring you. Father, we glorify you and we praise you and we pray that your will be done and that you be glorified and magnified Oh, Lord, so much more than what I am capable of doing, but that we, as the body of Christ, are capable of doing because where two or three are gathered, there you are also. Father, as we move into a time of worship and sing praises and glory to you, I pray, Father, that you remove the distractions. I pray that you remove the hindrances. And I pray, Father, that you will allow us to focus on you, Jesus, our Savior, and that we can celebrate and give thanks for this great gift that we have been given in our Savior who came to be one of us and to make us the sons and the daughters of God through his own sacrifice. Father, glorify yourself now as we worship you. The name of Jesus, Lord, I pray. Amen. All right, if you're comfortable standing, stand on up and worship the Lord with us.
recognize your power and your glory. We love singing to you, Lord. We love that you gave us the gift of song to be able to sing to you. And we praise you and love you. I'm going to close out with this last one. Pick things up just a little bit more. Sunday, and normally what we do on second Sundays is birthdays. Any December birthdays? Other than Jesus. Any de- You're a December birthday, Miss Jordan. Any other December birthdays? Well, what we would normally do is we would sing happy birthday, and we do have birthday cake. Miss Olivia made a birthday cake. But I was watching the news, and they had this really fascinating article that 
there has been a discovery, I want to say it was in Iraq, maybe, where in a cave, um, kind of similar to the Dead Sea Scroll situation, there were like these clay pots, and, uh, and they found the missing last verse to Mary, did you know? And since it's Jordan's birthday, why don't you come up and you can sing it with us, Jordan. Come on up. Nobody minds if Jordan come up. She loves to come up here. Come on up here. She's got her own microphone. <clears throat> so because there's this missing last verse, we're going to go ahead and sing that. And uh, Dorothy's got the special lyrics ready to go because we, we had to have them flown overseas and, uh, and, uh, and translated, actually. Did you know your baby boy was born in December? Did you know your baby boy was not born in September? Did you know your baby boy could come at any day? The child that you have carried is gonna look like clay. I'm married to you know? Now, have that baby so we don't have to do that again, okay? <laughs> Do we, do we just induce he's, you? He's nice. <laughs> he's definitely coming in January now. We do have lunch available for everybody and uh, and cake available. And uh, you said there's a prayer meeting coming up. Did you need to say more about that? All right. Sounds good. You're all dismissed. <laughs>